Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Do you know what the stigmata are? Five wounds. His back was scourged by whips. There were nails driven through his hands and feet. Only deeply devoted people have been afflicted. September of 1224, an Italian friar named Francis of Assisi was fasting on a mountain in Tuscany. There, he claimed to have a vision of Jesus crucified, and when the vision faded, he was left with wounds mimicking those of his God. Wounds in each palm, each foot, and in his side. He was bleeding, and he kept bleeding for a long, long time. It kind of became his thing. Francis of Assisi was widely believed to have been the first stigmatist, as in someone whose wounds were miraculously bestowed upon them, not by physical injury, but by a higher power. Interestingly, though, another man in Oxford two years prior had appeared before the Archbishop of Canterbury. He too had the wounds of Christ. But the assumption there was that he'd injured himself and he was a blaspheming heretic. No one paid him any attention. Reach out, touch faith. I'm Jerry Mandiba, and this is Beyond Belief. So what makes for a believable bout of stigmata? Well, it seems largely about the effect. As in, the Roman Catholic Church were happy to back St. Francis of Assisi because the people seemed to love him and his condition played well with their obsession with portraying Christ's suffering. And it kind of caught on too. At least 10 people developed stigmata within a few decades following Francis's. And since then, stigmata has occurred with a fair amount of regularity. There are over 450 cases of stigmata on the record, and they're not just confined to Europe or even to the Catholic Church. No, no, at last count, there were 25 current cases happening all around the world, including in Canada, Korea, and Japan. It's also fascinating to note that women stigmatists traditionally outnumbered men seven to one, but in the last century, that balance is shifting. Why is stigmata more popular among women? Well, some believe it's because it grants sufferers a certain spiritual authority in a religion and a culture with very little space for them. The implication there, of course, is that stigmata is not a miracle, but something manufactured by people who feel that they have very little agency in their everyday selves and plenty of it to gain through holy endorsement. However, for believers, Stigmata is a sign of direct communion with Jesus and that it's possible, which is still an oddly radical idea for a religious denomination known for creating middlemen. For modern day stigmata researchers though, 
there are many more possibilities beyond stigmata being either faked or real. It's been suggested that the wounds could be psychosomatically created, willed into physical manifestation through the power of the mind. This interpretation is supported by painful bruising syndrome. That's where a traumatized survivor can relive a painful memory of being injured via hypnotic states, and in doing so, create a physical skin reaction like bruising or swelling or redness or even rope burn to appear on their skin as if by magic. The link between fasting and stigmata has also led to the idea that stigmata comes from starvation-induced disassociative mental states where someone might self-mutilate and not actually realize what they've done. Someone who knows a hell of a lot about all these interpretations and more is my guest today. Ted Harrison is the former religious affairs correspondent for the BBC, an expert in religious phenomena, including the cult of Elvis, and he's the author of Stigmata, a medieval mystery in a modern age. I caught up with him to find out what incarnation is going on here. Hi, Ted. Thanks so much for joining me. Very nice to be with you. Thank you. So we're talking about stigmata today and I'm so excited to talk to you about it. So if we're just going to generalize really broadly, like how does stigmata manifest itself? What, what is it? What does it look like? It's when a person gets on themselves, on their bodies, the physical wounds of crucifixion. They can be on the hands, on the feet. It could be similar to a crown of thorns or it could be a wound in the side uh, relating to the spear wound of Jesus on the cross. So it's the wounds of crucifixion mimicking those of Jesus at the end of his earthly life. And what made you want to write a book about stigmata and investigate this as a phenomenon when you first came across it? Well, I was working with the BBC as a news reporter and I was working on a daily program. It was about Easter and it was a slow news day and not very much was <laughs> happening in the world. And I looked through some of the cuttings of the year before and I saw a strange story about a small story about a woman who was living in Liverpool in the north of England who had these marks. And I've always been interested in religious phenomena generally and in religious behavior. I thought, well, let's see if I can go and meet her and see if we can get recordings on that day because she, she says, uh, or it's claimed that she gets the marks every Good Friday. So I went up and I met up with the priest who was her confessor. I was taken to see her in the uh, nursing home where she lived. And that's where I met Ethel Chapman for the first time. And I got to know Ethel quite well. I wrote about her and recorded a long interview with her. And it was fascinating to see and hear about her story. Yeah. And so from the book that you wrote from, from there in your studies on this phenomenon, you explain that there's vastly different schools of thought, namely religious versus medical on what causes stigmata. Can you kind of give us a brief rundown of what the theories out there say? Yes, it's a, a phenomenon that's been known about since the days of St. Francis of Assisi in the 13th century. 1224, it's said that he had the marks. 
Curiously, there is one reported case earlier in 1222 of a man in Oxford who was described as a layman whose madness was that he passed himself off to be crucified. And this was seen as a blasphemy. Oh. But St. Francis of Assisi found he had the marks near the end of his life, having had a vision. They were first, I suppose, mentioned in the Bible in the writings of St. Paul, who talked mysteriously about carrying on himself the, the marks, the stigma, literally the wounds of Christ. But nothing was further explained. So it came to St. Francis mm -hmm. as the person who was um, largely said to be the first. And from there on, right up until this day, I suppose there have been somewhere around 450 cases from what I can work out, at least those that have been made public, of people who have claimed and displayed on their bodies these curious marks corresponding to crucifixion. When it first happened, people didn't really distinguish between that and various forms of pious mutilation. There was, for instance, a Frenchman mm -hmm. in the 13th century who every Good Friday deliberately marked his own flesh in order to be able to, to suffer as if he was Jesus and to feel the pain. There was another case of a nun who was seen um, with the wounds of crucifixion on her hands, but also it was described that she banged her hands fiercely with the middle finger of her other hand with a sharpened nail on that finger, and um, this caused the wounds. But it wasn't said that it was fraud. It was pious mutilation of some sort. Anyway, by the time we get to the age of reason and rationalization and all the rest of it, 18th, 19th centuries, the medical profession started looking into it and wondering what it was all about. And the theologians had also asked questions. Was it to do with a gift from God? Had God wanted to mark people out individually, sometimes if they were particularly holy? Or was it what was described as the counterfeit of the devil, that the devil did this to deceive Christians into believing something strange was happening. But mm. by the time the 19th century came, they decided that it had to be explored scientifically and all sorts of theories came along, some of which are to do with spontaneous markings of the skin that happen physically under emotional circumstances, others to do with forms of self-hypnosis, that this could be the cause. And of course, there were a lot of other people who said, no, no, it was all fraud. People had marked themselves and passed it off as something superstitious, supernatural even, and it was all for their own glory or their own gain. So there came to be by the 20th century, a division of opinion between those who said, it's all fraud. It couldn't possibly be real. And those who said, well, hang on a minute, God works in a mysterious way, there could be something supernatural about it. And this has been the opposing camps, really, ever since. Of the almost 400 stigmatists that you've studied, how many are broadly seen to be, quote-unquote, faking it versus how many that might have, you know, a case for being legitimate in one way or another? Well, I haven't studied all 400, remember, uh, firsthand. I've read about mm -hmm. many, many, many of them. But I have had the opportunity of studying firsthand uh, about 10 cases of contemporary cases and also looked at a lot of literature on it as well. I came to the conclusion... When one says, is it fraud or is it supernatural, that we're actually asking the wrong question. Because the more I looked at it, the more I saw that the marks that appeared physically, which could be seen by skeptics and believers alike, were not all 
caused in exactly the same way. There were some that appeared as if they had been pierced, some that appeared much more like burns, some that appeared uh, more like blisters. So there were all sorts of different manifestations of the wounds. It was the positioning that was interesting. And the other thing which I noticed was that what you needed to make it into a stigmata was you had to have some form of authentication. You had to have a congregation or a community or a family or a confessor, a priest, or even the church that said, this is of religious significance to us. And that's what I think makes the difference. Because, you see, I don't think you can clearly say that all cases are fraudulent, even though I would maintain all of them are naturally caused. To go back to mm -hmm. Ethel Chapman, the very first case that I saw and met her, she described her experience. She was in hospital. She was seriously ill. She was thinking that she was going to be dying. She had a friend with her who was talking to her about Christian faith because Ethel herself had a troubled conscience about things that she had done in the past. And that night she had a very vivid dream. And that dream was to do with herself in the position of Christ being crucified. And when she woke up, she saw the marks on her hands. And her immediate, and I think quite correct supposition, was that as she was dreaming, she had been clenching her fists fiercely and digging her finger into the middle of her palms of her hand. I think that's mm. the natural explanation. However, her friend, who was religious, and a Roman Catholic doctor who was in the hospital, saw the marks and said, they look like those of stigmata. And that gave Ethel meaning in life. It began to give her purpose to live again. And for the next seven years of her life, she did relive that experience. She got the marks again. But she also had what she saw as her ministry of praying for people who were ill and sick. And people got in touch with her and asked for prayers. So although it was natural, it was not bogus. It was not fraudulent. And it was truly religious. And I think lots of the explanations that one can come up with for individual cases of stigmata fall into that camp. We're not talking about deliberate fraud, although there is some deliberate fraud, and I don't think we're talking about anything that is supernatural, because there are theological arguments against that. Now, why would a god who could perfectly well cure illness in the world and stop wars devote his miraculous powers just to a party trick on a few believers? You know, it doesn't make theological sense. It does make sense religiously if a person uh, has the marks and it to them and to others around them appears to have meaning. And I would add one other level, if you like, of understanding. And I would compare some of the more spectacular cases of stigmata. And there were some who were almost on public display and their wounds were shown and blood was flowing, all the rest of it. I would compare that with performance art of contemporary art today. You have performance artists like uh, Marina Bramovich, who will deliberately cause pain to herself sitting publicly as people watch her. And this is her form of performance art. And I think there is that aspect to it as well. So I think you've got to explore some of the underlying reasons. And one other set of factors that made me think that it wasn't supernatural was to examine the sociology of it. To begin with, almost uh, overwhelmingly, Stigmato was female. Seven or eight cases to every one man. 
This changed at the beginning of the 20th century, and now we're running about 2.4 or 5 women to every one man. And for the first time, there have been priests who have got the marks for the first time ever over the, just within the last 80 years or so. And I think this is to do with questions of authority within the church. Because in the old days, women had no authority in the church. They couldn't celebrate mass if they were Roman Catholics. They had to go through a male priest. But one way you could bypass that process and get authority back to yourself was to say, look, I've got the direct marks of the body of Christ on my body, and I don't mm -hmm. need the church to be an authority over me. Yes. And you also noted that in many cases, they're poor women as well. So the, the agency that they have out in the world is, is truly, you know, that of a marginalized group. Many of them were members of religious orders. Um, certainly women in the early times were members of religious orders. And often it was the custom for a person to go into a convent if there was no other opportunity. They didn't marry. They were the younger daughter maybe of a good, well-off family, but they had no marriage prospect or something like that. And they were the marginalized. They were put aside. They were put into a convent. But these people sometimes became very powerful women. You, the abbesses of medieval times, well, the, the, the male clergy were quite afraid of a lot of them, and they were highly intellectual women's scholars in their own right, and they were often the people who were authenticating a case of stigmata or receiving them themselves. So you had that aspect of it as well. Interesting, as you got to the 20th century and the priests began to get the marks, this was when you began to get a certain breakdown of the hierarchy of priesthood. Yeah. And would you theorize then that the rise in the number of, of priests in the last century and, and males in general is similar to the previous examples of women? Maybe it's to do with them having less social sway than they used to and seeking the same kind of authority, perhaps? I think so. And I think it's also a general breakdown of authority within the the church, particularly the Roman Catholic Church. And you've seen that much more recently, of course, uh, in um, most Western countries where there's been a breakdown of authority within the church over, over a lot of allegations of, of malpractice by the clergy. But you've had a general breakdown of authority within the 20th century or a, a reverence for authority figures, probably dating from the First World War. So people are beginning to take their own religious initiatives, if you like, whereas at one stage they had been quite content to have done exactly what the church said and believed in what they, the church taught exactly. Yeah. You've also talked about how stigmatists, you know, in previous centuries, you know, would be Roman Catholic based in Europe. But in the last century, there's more people in different parts of the world, Asia, Canada, in the US, there was, you know, a non-Catholic Native American person, as well as a, a young black woman from Oakland, a girl um, who received the stigmata too. Why do you think that it's spreading in, in this kind of way? Well, it's now very much an international phenomenon. Uh, Japan, Korea, Nigeria has got a current case, which is becoming quite celebrated. And so it's moved away from the Latin roots, if you like, in Europe, from Italy and from Spain and from France, where it predominated in the early years. And it's moved away, partly to do with 
emigration across the world and partly to do with the taking of Christianity, of course, uh, in the other direction. So it's, um, so it's become truly international. South America, Bolivia, Argentina, Canada, and Samoa is a recent case as well. So all, all the way around the globe. We'll be right back with Ted Harrison in just a second to talk about the psychosomatic theory of stigmata, the spectacle of this religious experience as he's witnessed it firsthand, and where stigmata is heading. Because believe it or not, the rates of stigmata are actually increasing. But for now, a quick story. Picture this. It's 1999, and I'm in my religious studies class at my Catholic school, the same one for which I was cynically baptised in order to be enrolled at the age of 12. And we're watching an old VHS about miracles. And it's just scene after scene of close-ups of statues of the Virgin Mary crying blood, which is a miracle that supposedly happens a lot. And there's pictures of stigmatists and close-ups of their bloody wounds. And it's just a bloodbath. And as a 14-year-old with no prior experience of how graphic Catholicism can be, I was pretty disturbed. I wondered if these were actually miracles or the work of the devil. See episode one on Satanism for more of my twin theological takes on that. So anyway, I'm watching and I'm watching and they're bleeding and they're bleeding and I feel my own blood pumping harder and faster. I can't breathe. I want to call out but I can't. My vision is fading and I feel like I'm going to pass out. I half fall out of my chair, hitting the ground and mumbling. And I'm taken to the nurse. My friend told me later that she and a few other people in the class were shocked. They thought I was about to launch into a full-blown stigmata episode. I guess they were slightly disappointed to learn that I'd simply fainted. Or at least that's what I was told. It's clear now that I had a fucking anxiety attack. I almost can't believe that I was the only one. What was the purpose of showing a bunch of kids something so bloody and graphic? Was it meant to awe us into believing even more fervently? Was it meant to scare us into never misbehaving? Maybe it was supposed to inspire us vis-a-vis -vis all the wonders of heaven that we'd never fully understand. I'm honestly not sure, but I know it terrified and it fascinated me in equal measure. And I'm quite sure, and it pains me to say this, that the 14-year-old me even daydreamed about actually getting stigmata myself. Think of all the attention. Now, a word from our sponsors. Giving your body all the care and nutrients right now is not easy. What with all of us working from home and attempting to cook ourselves three square healthy meals a day. But guess what? You can stop stressing because Sakara will deliver fresh, delicious, healthy meals straight to your door. Sakara is famous for their plant-rich, ready-to-eat meals made with organic ingredients and powerful superfoods. From savory flatbreads to hearty salads, their ever-changing meals are 100% plant-based, gluten-free, dairy-free, and non-GMO. And in addition to their delicious meals, Sakara also offers daily essentials like supplements and herbal teas to complete your wellness routine and to support your overall health and vitality. To boost immunity, try their best-selling daily probiotic blend or detox water drops with pure chlorophyll. And right now, 
Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their order when they go to sakara.com slash beyondbelief or enter code beyondbelief at checkout. If I'm understanding certain studies about stigmata correctly, it seems like some people are in agreement that certain emotional states can actually produce these um, psychosomatic effects that manifest physically. So it seems like, you know, legitimate people are saying, yes, you know, there is a kind of a mind over matter thing happening in some cases, at least where people can get into a certain psychological state where they can produce these wounds on themselves with the power of, of their mind. It seems like that's kind of a point that people agree on and it's legitimate, but the implications for that are like quite huge. It's, it's kind of saying that in some cases, like mind really wins over matter and that we can change our bodies in, in a really dramatic way. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on, on that kind of lens. Well, it's undoubtedly the case that uh, the mind does affect the body. Um, you just have to think of something like blushing. You know, you can be told something which is embarrassing and you blush. That, that's well recognized. Um, whether or not it can be as sophisticated as mimicking marks, I would not discount 100% because there have been one or two medical instances reported. There was a very famous case, I think it was mid-20th century, of someone who had had a traumatic experience of being held prisoner and there were rope marks around the wrists and when he relived that in his mind, marks came back into the skin. So the skin does mimic, particularly if it's been previously traumatised, some of the, the injuries that it had. And some people, of course, do have particularly bruisable skin, and I don't think there's any doubt about that. What's interesting is that, although I think it's possible once you've got an initial trauma of the skin, that it may be that it can be reactivated psychosomatically, no one has actually, as far as I can see in any of the literature, witnessed the very first instance in which a person has received the stigmata. There have been people who have said that they've seen them reoccur and have done this under test circumstances, but never the actual initial one. So I do tend to feel still that it is natural in some way and traumatic in some way, physical in some way to begin with even though later the skin might be able to mimic some severe trauma that it's previously received. So I don't think that one should lay too much emphasis on the psychosomatic when it comes to explaining this phenomena. I think it's much more to do with uh, it being an expression of a religious idea, but physically through much more normal and certainly non-supernatural means. There's no reason to try and look for some exotic explanation when I think there is a much more simple explanation at hand. Mm, yeah, and so the position that you've kind of taken in, in, in layman's terms, you could say that these people are disassociating and they're creating these injuries on themselves in a way where they genuinely just can't remember. Yes, I think there are quite a number of instances where marks will occur on a body and one isn't totally aware of, of 
how those marks occurred. Now, I can think of myself injuring a hand and thinking, how did I get that bruise? Now, <laughs> if it happened to be that I got that bruise right in the middle of the palm of my hand on both hands simultaneously, and I was of a religious disposition such that I would think of myself having been marked by crucifixion, and I then showed it to a priest who said, goodness, good heavens, you know, you've got the stigmata, then you know, I might believe I've got it. <laughs> but it would have come down to an unknown injury that one was unaware of as it was happening. And I think you can get that sort of thing. I, I, there was one story of a stigmatic that I met who says that he received the marks in the course of a church service. He suddenly saw on his hands two large red marks on, on the palms of both as he lifted his hands up. And he saw in his mind's eye the significance of it. That was the marks of Jesus. Now, the probable explanation is that he put his hand on some varnish on a pew that was wet because it was, or damp because it was a very hot day. And he then put his hands together to pray. And of course, <laughs> it had been printed on both sides. <laughs> so it's a perfectly natural explanation. But he read into it a religious significance. And I think this is what we're looking at. That's not to say there aren't some people who, for reasons of piety, perhaps, or even wanting to put on some form of performance, don't mark themselves. And I think this can certainly happen. But it doesn't have to be necessarily fraudulent. You wouldn't say, for instance, a person who has the ability to create a great work of art or to create a great work of religious music, that they're being fraudulent because they've created something which arouses an intense religious feeling in other people. No, they're doing something entirely human, but it has a religious significance to it. Mm, and I love the performance art analogy because it's just a, a very subjective expression um, that people are compelled to create, and sometimes it's very extreme. Yes, um, and, and of course it puts the person who's performing through quite often quite a lot of, of pain and hardship in order to do it. And it can, be, it can cost their bodies dearly, but it is to a purpose. It is to be able to connect ideas through to other people. So if you're wanting to share a religious idea... You want to share the, the whole concept of the incarnation of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus for the sins of the world. What better way of doing it than through the drama of stigmata? It's one that has really, when you see the marks and see the whole thing going on around you, um, and particularly if it's associated with some of these other mis um, su supposedly mysterious events, you know, a weeping statue or something like that, it's a very full theatrical performance and it does in in the way that a shaman might use all sorts of trickery to be able to raise the religious conscience and spirituality of of the people that he's performing to it's that sort of thing mm. you've mentioned a couple of really interesting cases of stigmata that you've seen firsthand i wonder if there's another kind of story that you have to share with us that can kind of describe this uh, spectacle that, that you've been kind of drawn into as a researcher? I think one of the most unusual cases that I was able to, to see and, and do some study of was that of Audrey Santo. She was a young girl who lived in on the East Coast, uh, Worcester, Massachusetts, 
Um, and she had had an injury when she was young that had put her into a coma. And all the way through, from very young through to her mid-teens, she was in a coma. She wasn't able to, to talk or didn't appear to be aware of what was going on in the world. And yet her family around her said that she had mystical powers, that she could heal, that she was fully aware of what was going on. Uh, and indeed now there is a talk that she may even be made a saint. There is a cause for her canonization that is beginning to be drawn up. And, and she received marks on her body. And I remember one remarkable occasion, and this is all to do with the authentication of a mystic, if you like, when she was brought in an ambulance into the center of a football stadium where there was a crowd all the way around. And she was there while mass was being said by a group of priests. And she was literally on display like a living relic mm. during that service. And then she went back to her home. And she had claims of um, statues that wept holy oil and things of this sort. Now, there's a lot of skeptics who say, no, this was her mother doing things. This was her mother trying to find some sort of purpose out of a very sad, tragic event of her daughter having been put into a coma as a result of a childhood accident. But it was genuine religious devotion around the people who came to see her offering prayers. And those prayers were not directed at little Audrey, but they were directed at God. Um, and it was very often profoundly religious. Now, do you just say, even if this could be proved, oh, that was just fraud, that was just a show. Or do you say, no, this was the way religion can work in a very mysterious way? So interesting. Um, I don't know where I read this or if it's true. I wonder what your take is on this. Is it true that in most cases, stigmatists will receive the wounds in the, the same place that perhaps like their visual example of Jesus Christ on the cross has wounds. For example, if they pray to um, a crucifix that's on their wall every day, it's almost like they mimic the wounds that they have in front of them or, or just, you know, the, the ones that they interpret as, as the most real, whether it's in the wrists or in the hands. Yes, there is a correlation there. And I think quite understandable if uh, a person gets marks in a way that they don't understand and then want to recognize them as stigmata, if that corresponds with the, the cru crucifix with which you are familiar, then that will give you more of a chance of saying that's what they are, they're, they're stigmata. I remember, for instance, there was a priest in a suburb on the outskirts of Washington, D.C., um, Jim Bruce, who got the marks, and his marks were in the wrist and corresponded with a statue in the church where he worked and served. Okay, so... I think I just have one more question for you, Ted. In your book on stigmata, you, you kind of um, predict, if, if that's not too strong a word, that cases will increase into the 21st century. Since you originally wrote that book, what have you observed? Is, is this something that you, you see now to be true? It sounds like there are more and more cases that you're observing, but what do you think about where stigmata is going? Well, when I did most of my research, it was 25 years ago, and I was looking ahead to the new millennium, and there was a lot of millennium superstition going around, and I expected that there would be an increase in cases with that. But in fact, as the 21st century has gone by, there have been a steady number of cases 
20th century, I would estimate there were 70 cases. We're on course at the moment in the 21st century for about 100, so there is an increase. They are much more international. The ratio of men to women is still about 2.4 women to every one man. Well, we're also getting one or two other forms of stigmata as well. That is, people who have forms of alternative forms of religious iconography on which to draw. There was one case I came across of a Muslim who had the wounds of the um, of the Prophet on his body, the battle wounds of the Prophet. Uh, I was never able to confirm that report. But what I have seen have been one or two people who have claimed alien abduction, that they had visions of being taken into spacecraft and being marked by the aliens, and they've then displayed these marks on their bodies. Now, they're taking a whole different set of archetypes and a whole different form of uh, stories. But at the end of it, they have been able to display some sort of physical evidence to substantiate what they're saying or claim to substantiate it. So you're getting a slight shift in that way, and I think you'll get more cases along those lines as well. But yes, as the 21st century goes, I think there will be a continuing number. And this, of course, is partly for two other very practical reasons. One is that the population of the world is increasing, so you've got more people. And the other is uh, communications are a lot better. So I think one is hearing about more cases than one might have done in the past. Mm, and that's certainly going to have an effect on, you know, other would-be stigmatists, I imagine, when they're hearing about it and reading about it on the internet and such. Yes, it could be. It could have that sort of effect. Um, though so far, what we have seen is in history as geographical clustering. So when you've got a cluster of cases in central Germany at one point, um, a cluster in cases in Spain at one point. So there is the suggestion that perhaps once you get a case in one part of the world, others heard about it and mimicked. And so if you've got much more of a global network, yes, that could indeed uh, result in more cases around the world. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like there's maybe there's no substitute for one's community and, you know, the spectacles that can kind of take place there. And we, we see, you know, in non-stigmata examples, a lot of like, I don't know what the word would be, but mass hysteria of one kind or another can really take hold in a geographical place. So, yeah, that's so fascinating. I've loved talking about this and I feel like I could ask you questions all day, Ted, but thank you so much for your time today. I much enjoy talking to you. Thank you very much for asking me. Thank you. So when it comes to stigmata, it seems like it's really a case of one person's pious mutilation being another person's miracle which is another person's fraudulence, which is another person's legitimate religious experience. It reminds me of that meme where the vertical images of the brain keep expanding with every new twist on an idea. Anyway, what I love the most from my time with Ted is that while his interpretation of stigmata is an incredibly rational one, well, that's just it. It's incredibly rational. It doesn't scoff at what's clearly a very earnest and affecting religious experience, and one that's revered by and inspiring to millions of people around the world. It's not dismissive. It's genuinely curious, and it's all too aware of the power and the sway that religious experiences such as these 
have in the world today. They need to be taken seriously, just not necessarily as serious evidence of God, but more so as evidence of the great eternal need for God among humans. That's worth studying, don't you think? After all, we're well into a new century now and call them miracles, call them hysteria, they're not going anywhere. If you liked this episode of Beyond Belief, you can rate, review and share the podcast and you can send me a DM on Instagram at jericho.mandibur. Beyond Belief is a Wonder Media Network production recorded on Tongva land and edited and produced by Liz Smith with the support of Edie Atled. Wonder Media Network is a women-led podcasting company dedicated to uplifting underrepresented voices based in New York City. Is there anything wrong with wanting to look sexy once you're a mom? Why are we so quick to call angry women crazy? On Thread the Needle, a new indie feminist podcast, host Donna Cleveland helps listeners to tease out the truth from societal expectations so that they know what ideas to throw out and what to hold on to. In America, women have more freedom and opportunity than at any point in history to choose their own path in life. And yet conflicting messages from popular culture, family members and friends make it hard for women to know how to see themselves and what to strive for in the world. On Thread the Needle, Donna explores the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives in order to help women see their path more clearly. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.